When my wife Jan and I were beginning to contemplate seminary studies, we decided that we would go to visit the campus of the seminary and try to meet some of the students that were there to find out what the challenges of being in seminary were like. And so we arrived uh, one day on the campus and decided to just knock on some doors of the campus apartments and meet someone there. And we knocked on one door and a, a young woman came to the door and we explained to her why we were there and wanted to find out what seminary life was like uh, from her standpoint. And so she invited us in and proceeded to give us an earful of what it was like being married to someone in seminary. And uh, she was filled with bitterness toward her husband and toward his theological studies. She felt so neglected, so lonely. You could just feel the, the anger and the estrangement in this young seminary wife. And we listened to this, uh, not knowing what to say, and, and finally near the end of the conversation, she said, well, my husband's going to be graduating soon, and then he'll be going into the pastorate, and then I hope he'll have more time for me. <laughs> and our hearts just sank within us because we knew, of course, what it would be like for someone in the busy pastorate. And, we could just imagine the shipwreck that lay ahead for this couple. And it was, it was so sad to have to leave there. And together we purposed that this would not happen to us, that we would do everything that we could in our power as a young couple to preserve our marriage through graduate school and beyond. And when we did begin to study uh, in seminary, we became good friends with other fellas and their wives in the philosophy of religion program. And there were about four couples that we hung around with uh, as regular friends. Uh, and uh, not within many years after graduating, uh, two out of the four couples were then divorced. Uh, one was a pastor with his wife, the other was a missionary uh, and, and his wife, and they soon divorced. One other couple went through tremendous stresses uh, at the University of Chicago trying to do doctoral work in philosophy, but this fellow had a deep commitment to his wife and purpose to work through their struggles and problems together, and their marriage was preserved and flourishes today. I don't know what happened to the fourth couple. They had some real difficulties too, but it, it's sobering when you think that maybe 50% of you here in this room may be headed toward divorce. Uh, that, that's what the odds are. And it, it, it's, it's so sobering because the scripture says very clearly God hates divorce. That divorce is not an option for the Christian except on grounds of adultery, uh, according to what Jesus said. And yet in our day and age of serial marriages, it seems that so many people uh, betray Christ and disgrace him in this way by uh, pursuing a divorce. And I want to just say to you as straightforwardly as I can that if you succeed academically in graduate school uh, at the expense of your marriage, then you have failed. Uh, you failed in God's sight because you're a personal failure uh, if you haven't managed to maintain that most important relationship that God has given you. And your academic success really counts very little in the scale compared to the failure that's represented uh, to preserve your vows and to 
preserve that marriage that God has given you for life. And uh, so it's just very critical, I think, that we think hard about uh, maintaining and, and preserving marriages in the, this, this very stressful time of graduate school. Now, for those of you who are still single, I want to say just a couple of words about the importance of marrying the right person, because that is just key. If, if you don't marry the right person, then you are bound for either divorce or a life of misery. Uh, trying to live with the wrong person, and, and that will just be a burden on your heart that will be an albatross around your neck to change mixed metaphors. It will weigh you down and crush you emotionally, and you don't want that. So you don't want either life of misery or uh, to end in divorce, and so it's just critical that you marry the right person. Now, I want to share a couple of just personal pieces of advice that not everybody is going to appreciate, that these are rather politically incorrect. And so I want to say, as Paul did, not I, or not, not the Lord, but I offer this advice. You know, this, this is what I say. I have no commandment of the Lord on this, but this is just my advice uh, to you. Uh, I would ad advocate or recommend to you that you marry someone uh, I'm speaking especially to the fellows here. I, I tend to think of this from a male-oriented perspective because that's my perspective. Sorry, ladies, you know, but that's the way I, I look at it. I want to say to you guys first, and then there'll be something similar for the, the women. But for the guys, I think I would encourage you to marry someone who believes in you and who supports you in the calling that you feel God has given you. Someone who believes in you and supports you in that, that calling that you have. When, uh, I remember when I first married Jan, I said to her, I feel like I can do anything if there's just one person who believes in me. And she said, I want to be that one person. And she has been, you know, all these years. And uh, I owe a lot of uh, any success that I've achieved to her. And I would covet that for you, that if, if you could have a woman who believes in you, who thinks that God is speaking through you, you know, is using you, and who wants to support you, this is the most wonderful uh, relationship and, and asset that you can have. Now, the, the other side of the coin would be, you gals, can't you be that woman to some, some man to, uh, whom you feel God is asking you to marry? Can you be that person who will be his cheerleader, his ally, uh, his advocate, rather than his critic and a uh, person who doesn't care about what he does? I, I remember in philosophy of religion in, in seminary, we would have a Monday night colloquium at Norm Geisler's house. And all the students in the department were invited, including their wives. Jan was the only wife who came to those Monday night colloquia. Uh, and she didn't understand everything went on, but she was interested in my work. She was interested in what I was learning as a philosopher. And so she wanted to be a part and she would come on Monday nights. And one of the other philosophers, uh, students, in fact, he was one who eventually got divorced, said to, to Jan, oh, how I wish that my wife were as interested in what I'm doing as you are in what Bill's doing. And so I would hope that you, you gals, should you marry, you would marry someone who has a calling that, you, that resonates with your heart and that you want to be a part of and you want to support. Now, that would mean that you see it as your mission to be his helper. Remember how Eve was created to be a helper fit for Adam, 
That's the role that God had intended for a wife, to be a helper, fit for her husband, to help him and, and support him along. And that would mean to share a common calling. Now, the implication of this is, as uncomfortable as this may be, and again, this is just my personal advice, is that I would really beware of the career woman, the woman who sees herself as having an independent career from your own and a separate calling from your own. Or if you're a gal who has that independent calling and career, you've got to be really careful about marrying someone whose career you don't feel any interest in or any calling to support. Because what you'll find is in marriage, the thing that you have to fight against more than anything else is growing separateness. That as the years go on, you grow more and more and more apart. And one of the great things that can combat growing separateness is this unity of calling and mission where you're both partnered together in the same calling. And it's hard to do that if he feels called, say, to be a philosopher, you feel called to be, say, a medical doctor or, or something of that sort. That's going to create lots and lots of difficulties for the marriage. So again, that doesn't mean you know that God prohibits such, but it's just advice that I would give you is to beware of that and instead to seek to marry someone uh, whose calling and mission in life is the same as your own. Now, having said that, there is a more, the more fundamental important thing is not finding the right person to marry. Rather, it's becoming the right person yourself. Uh, your focus shouldn't be on, God, lead me to the right mate. Uh, help me to find the right person for me. Rather, your focus ought to be, God, shape me and transform my life to become the right person. God and his providence can be counted on to lead you to the right person. You are the right person. I think the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and his providence over everything that happens in the world. And so your marriage is not a matter of indifference to him. Uh, rather, he will bring you to the right person uh, when and if you are the right person uh, at that time. So in the interim, your goal should seek to be to live a pure and godly life, uh, to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, uh, to make that your focus. Second Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lusts, live a, uh, or rather flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So that ought to be your focus as a single person, uh, becoming a godly individual and not just pursuing uh, your passions. Remember that God has in particular intended sexual activity to be practiced within the security of the bonds of marriage. Uh, and so the Bible is very clear in its condemnation of fornication, which is any sexual activity or sexual intimacy outside of the marriage bond, and that would include premarital sexual activity. And so you need to guard both your body and your mind until God unites you in marriage with that person that he has intended to you and keep yourself pure. And therefore, especially you men, you've got to 
flee pornography. You, you have got to not allow yourself to look at this stuff or to be much less to become addicted to it. Indeed, I would say you need to be very careful with your eyes about what magazines you read, what television programs you watch, what movies you go to. I would encourage just to quit watching that stuff. Uh, just don't go. It's not with it. All it does is make you frustrated anyway. Uh, so why uh, arouse those passions by um, going and, and looking at such things? It, rather, if you will keep yourself pure for your mate, uh, I think you will be far happier in the end than if you go into your marriage having indulged in sexual activity of various sort and, and coming into the marriage uh, tainted in that way. So I would encourage you uh, in preparing yourself for marriage to keep yourself pure in body and mind so that when you do marry, you will be, have kept yourself pure for your mate. Now, if you're married and you're in graduate student, uh, graduate studies, then I think that one of the key things to keep in mind is your priorities. And I believe that your mate is more important than your studies. Um, that your first and foremost responsibility after God himself is to be faithful to your spouse. If you're a guy to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're a gal to submit to your husband and to respect him as uh, the church does to Christ. And what that means is, again, that if necessary, you must be willing to give up your graduate studies for the sake of your spouse. If your marriage has come to the point where it can bear the stress no longer, then love requires that you abandon your graduate studies and your dreams of a degree and postdoctoral work and so forth for the sake of your spouse. And so when Jan and I began graduate studies in seminary, I said to her, all you have to do is say the word and I will drop out. And she knew that I meant it, uh, that I did mean it. I would do it. I would have dropped out if she had said, I can't go on. This is, this is too much. But, you know, knowing that my commitment was real and that I would do that for her gave her extra strength to endure so that she put up with a lot of uh, stress and anxiety and pressure and schedules and so forth. So it's because she knew there was an out if we needed it. Uh, and that escape valve or hatch can, can be helpful to, to strengthen your spouse during these graduate study times. Covenant to spend time with one another. Set aside certain hours of the day that are sacred time that are devoted to your spouse where you will not study. Uh, and keep that time inviolate. This was what we did in graduate school, both in seminary and then in my doctoral work. I aside time for Jan when I said, I will not study during this time no matter what. And again, that was time for her, and she knew that was her time. And I would encourage you to do that as a, as a demonstration in a very tangible way of, of the priority of your spouse. And then during that time, uh, communication is really key with your spouse. Um, you need to be able to talk with each other on a very personal level. And I'll say something more about this in a second, but making eye contact with her so that, you know, two fellas, when they speak, 
you know, sometimes sort of stand side by side with each other like this, you know, and Greg and I will kind of talk like that. When you talk with your spouse, with a woman, you, you need to look her right in the eyes and talk to her like this. Make eye contact with her. Jan has said to me, reach out and hold my hand, and that will help to make contact. Uh, I shared this with a student once in one of my classes, uh, and he said he went home that night, and he knew he had been taking an overload of classes. He had been neglecting his wife. He said, Dr. Kirk, he said, I couldn't even lift my eyes from the dinner table to look her in the face. He said, I felt so ashamed. Uh, he couldn't even make eye contact with her. And he says, I knew then I had to, I had to retrench. And so he, he told her what I had shared in class. And he said, uh, so he was bringing in a slip for me to sign. He said, I'm dropping your class. And uh, I said, great, that's, that's a good decision. And he said, yeah, my wife said, any professor that would encourage you to drop his class for me is all right in my book. <laughs> so it was, it was a victory, you know, in his life. But actually, all this stuff about communication and spending time is really, in one sense, um, not the key issue. It's not really the central issue, as one might think. Um, the central issue we first encountered in going to a marriage counselor named Dwayne Law, and I can say just as an aside, don't be embarrassed to seek out a marriage counselor. I, I hope that everybody at periodic times in your marriage would take the advantage of going and seeing a counselor. And there are good counselors and there are woefully bad ones. And if you're wasting money on a bad one, just get out and try to find somebody new. But if you can find a really good marriage counselor who sees into your heart and sees things that you don't see in those blind spots, it can be very, very helpful in your relationships. Well, we were going counselor. Uh, our, this was actually, we'd been married a long time, but we were having real trouble with our kids. They were so disrespectful and sassy and snotty and just really uh, unpleasant to live with. And so we thought, well, we'll go to this counselor and get these kids straightened out. You know, what's the matter with them? And uh, Wayne kept talking to us about ourselves. And we, we, after about three times, we said, well, when are you going to get to the kids? And he said, uh, you've got to work on the foundations before you work on the walls of the house. And he saw things in me uh, that I didn't see in myself that he said was important to understand. And the thing that he kept emphasizing was the distinction between being and doing. The distinction between being and doing. I am very goal-oriented. I, I just, I have such a need for a sense of accomplishment. I'm so goal-oriented that I noticed the other day, I even get pleasure from finishing the bottle of shampoo in the shower, you know? And I thought, man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> You know, they, Jan, Jan said it's not, it's not, it's even worse than that because these are little bottles from the hotels, you know, and I go like this and then rinse it out, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm really goal-oriented. One of my friends in college once said to me, he said, Bill's the kind of guy who wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to work on love. <laughs> And what was embarrassing about it was it was true. I thought, how do you know that is what I do, you know? Um, but what Dwayne was saying is you can be doing all of the right things 
and not really being the person that you need to be. And, and what that means is you can be following the advice in all of these marriage books that you know you read and you, you hear about. Compliment her every day with some compliment. Tell her you love her. Spend time with each other. You know, communicate. You could check all of those things off your list and still not be engaged in what he called being uh, as opposed to just doing. Now, what does that mean? I, I kept trying to understand, what are you talking about being? Sound very existential, doesn't it? Well, the, what I, I determined he was talking about is, I think being is lowering one's walls. Uh, we all have these sort of walls up, I think, to kind of defend ourselves or protect our, our vulnerable points. It says being is lowering one's walls with the other person, having permeable boundaries. Again, we all have boundaries that we often don't let people cross, but with your mate, these boundaries should be permeable boundaries. That is to say, to have vulnerability and transparency before your mate. And this is very hard to do. I, I find this very difficult to do. And it's a, it was, it's a blind spot, you know, for me. Uh, and in fact, the, the Bible talks about this notion of self-deception, that we can be self-deceived in what we think we're doing. And who can see this, that we're actually in self-deception, that we're, we're blind to this? Well, your spouse sees it. And so we need to allow her or him to be a sort of mirror to us. And if there's anger there or resentment or estrangement, that's a mirror that something isn't right, you know, in the way I'm relating, that I'm not, I'm not being, I'm just doing. One barometer that I found for detecting this in yourself, if you're not being but just doing, is if in moments of introspection you feel resentment toward the things you do for your spouse. Like, man, I'm knocking myself out trying to spend time with her and trying to take a vacation and trying to compliment her every day. You know, if, if there's that feeling of resentment that you find welling up in your heart and you suppress it, let yourself feel it. Let it well up. And, and if, you, if you have that, you'll probably engaged in doing rather than being. You're just going through the motions. And you need then to have the courage to confront this in yourself and to open up and be vulnerable and transparent with your spouse. What's interesting about this is that this is also true of your relationship with God, I think. Um, God is also relational. God's a trinity. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God is in eternal relation among the persons of the Godhead. And he created us to know him, to invite us into the fellowship of the Godhead as adopted sons and daughters of God. And so the greatest commandment, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God. Notice the greatest commandment is not to serve the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? The greatest commandment is not serve the Lord your God with all your strength and heart and mind. It's to love him. He invites us into relationship with him. And so doing the right things can actually become the enemy of being. You can be so focused on doing that you forget about the being. Remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 where Martha is so busy serving the Lord and she says to Jesus, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, 
Martha, Martha, you're so busy and concerned about many things. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. And so we, we've got to be careful that all the doing doesn't become the enemy of being in our relationship with God. And what can be a barometer here? Well, just as a feeling of resentment toward your spouse can be a barometer of doing rather than being with her. The barometer, I think, perhaps in relation to God is when God is seen as a taskmaster. Uh, and I've noticed that many of those who have committed apostasy on the internet infidels, and you see these testimonies of, of people on the internet who have been Christians, very often the God that they have deserted or apostatized from is seen as the taskmaster whose burden was too heavy to bear. And if that's the way we see God, then we're not just loving him, we're just serving him. And we need to confess and try to reorient our lives uh, in the appropriate way. So when you think about it, loving persons is the most important thing in life because God is personal. So loving God, the three divine persons, and then loving uh, one another is the priority in life. And there will be varying degrees of intimacy, of course, in our love relationships. First, our spouse, where we need to talk and communicate with each other and to connect emotionally with each other. And then secondly, after that will be children. Now, let me just share a piece of advice with you about children that uh, also was very helpful to us that came from Dwayne. Uh, and that is, it's not enough just to have consistency in dealing with your children. I thought that what you needed to have in a home was high love, but then also high consistency, that it's the inconsistent discipline that confuses the child and creates rebellious behavior and things. So, boy, for me, consistency, you know, was really important, no compromise. Uh, and what Dwayne said, this creates when your kids become adolescents and begin to break away and become independent, is an attitude of rebellion because they rebel against that. And that would result in a clash of wills where I would not back down because I, I felt I had to be consistent. I had to win this battle of the wills. You couldn't let the kids win. Uh, and, but they weren't going to give up either. And so there was tension and so forth in the home. And what Dwayne gave to us was a piece of advice that really changed our relationship with our children that I want to pass on to you. And it's so simple, but it's very empowering. And it's this. He said, don't just give them commands to do something like I would. John, uh, you need to clean your room. And, and then if he wouldn't do it, I'd say, you will clean your room. Now clean it. Uh, or you will mow the lawn. Uh, or uh, it's your turn to do the dishes tonight. You must do the dishes. And then you have that inevitable tension and fighting. Uh, what Dwayne said is, give your kids choices to do. Give them an either or whenever you want them to do something. So say something like this. John, uh, you can clean your room now or else um, you can not go to the basketball game on Saturday. And it's your choice. Uh, either clean your room or stay home from the game on Friday. Now that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it, it actually works because what the kids will do is they'll test you then to say, you know, well, I'm not going to clean my room. So, that's fine, John, that's just great. And uh, we'll spend Friday night here at home together, you know. And then when Friday night comes around, he starts complaining he can't go to the game. Well, but John, that was your choice. 
You chose to stay home tonight. You didn't have to stay here. This was your choice. And after this happens a couple of times, they begin to feel empowered to make choices. And, and you've got to really mean it. You can't make silly choices like you either clean that room or you're out of here. I'm kicking you out of the house, you know, or you know, you're out the window. You've got to give them realistic choices and then give them the right to make that choice. If they would prefer to live in the pigsty, but not go to basketball games, you've got to be happy with that and, and let them make that choice. And it just diffuses the rebellion enormously because they really do have genuine choices to make and they feel empowered as a result. So in dealing with your children, uh, who can be a tremendous source of strain on your marriage, uh, I would advise you to, to give them these either or, either or choices. Um, well, uh, let's see. I think that that pretty much wraps up what I wanted to share with you. There's a whole lot more that one could say, but I wanted to not diminish the key points by proliferating other minor points. I, I think these key points about the distinction between being and doing and setting these priorities is the key thing, and that if you'll do that and make this commitment with your spouse, that there will be no divorce, that no matter how hard it gets, you're going to work through it. You're going to work it out. You're going to get help if you need to, that that will uh, help you to sustain your marriage through these times of difficulty and on into the career God's given you. So uh, we've got some time for discussion, I, and I, I would like it to be discussion rather than just questions. I felt a little bit um, insecure giving a talk like this because one is aware of one's own feet of clay in this sort of subject, but any discussion or advice or helpful hints that others might have that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I don't know what to say to that. I have never, I mean, you would obviously have to be pretty close to them to interfere, I think, in another marriage. It, it, unless you just were to say, you know, something like, say, you know, you're aware they've had an argument. Say, you know, you guys really, really need, thank you, Craig, you really need to get some counseling. And here's a name of a guy that really is great. Why don't you see if... Uh, Joe would, would go to counseling with you. You know, you could do that. But I would, unless you know them really well, boy, I would be really afraid of trying to kind of insinuate yourself into that relationship as the counselor. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's very nice. But it's person specific. Yeah, I think uh, that that's a good thing for single grad students to do. I mean, actually, I guess it's just you've raised awareness, and it's a good thing for single grad students to do. It's something I try regularly to do is just babysit kids so that my friends or a couple can get along. Yeah. And um, it, it, I mean, you're, I mean, I did, so Jean told me this a long time ago, so I just stole it. But it's a really good thing. Yeah, especially if you volunteer and don't wait to be asked. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah, you have to do that because no, they won't want it. They won't want to intrude. Mm. So you have to, and you have to be able to say, "No, I want you guys to go out," mm. and, and that really does help. It won't solve the problem, but it might get them talking. <laughs> 
Yes. So another question. Um, you mentioned that your wife would come with you to the colloquia on yes. nights. Um, what other practices did the two of you employ so that you were um, continuously rededicating yourself to a common vision rather than pursuing yeah. separate objectives? Well, she she would come with me on or does come with me on trips, for example. Uh, and again, a lot of the philosophers go to the conventions and things by themselves, and Jan would typically come with me, and she'd like to meet the boys, you know, and she would get to know the boy, and uh, and uh, would would always kind of just be there, you know, and be a part. And I got to emphasize, she's not a philosopher. It's not as though she's uh, doing this herself, but she can appreciate the importance of it and get to know other people relationally. And, uh, and, and so she goes to conferences with me. Um, she takes the initiative in asking me about my work. She'll say, what did you study today? And I'll talk to her some article I read, and I'll try to, to explain it in a simple way. And sometimes I'll ask her opinion, and I'll say, what do you think, honey? Do you think that the number two exists? And you know, she'll think about it and then give me some opinion on the number two. Or uh, I remember when I was contemplating the idea of the infinite past, I would talk to her about Zeno's paradoxes, you know, and whether you can traverse an infinite and things of this sort. And, uh, it, it was just fun to to talk about what we were learning. Uh, and so there was that. If, and that's a, another piece of advice to those of you who are the spouses of someone who's doing graduate study take an interest in his or her work and say, explain to me what you do. Go and visit, somebody was mentioned the sciences, Andre, I think, say, I want to come and visit your laboratory. Show me your lab. You know, show me what you do. You know, your nuclear facility where you work or something. That kind of interest, that's, boy, that, that just means so much. And yet, how few spouses ever do that? You know, I, I, we were in Hong Kong recently with my wife and my mother. And we were visiting a guy who does some kind of nuclear physics, physics and he had some device in his laboratory. And my mother said, I want to see it. Take us to your lab and show it to us. You can't imagine how much it meant to this physicist that we would actually be interested in seeing his machine. And he just loved it that my mother cared about this. And he commented that his wife really had never expressed any interest in seeing his his machine, whatever this thing was. You know, it was kind of sad. So that would be something else. Um, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm married an executive secretary, you know, who could type like 90 to 100 words a minute, you know. So I, I write everything longhand, and she typed all my papers, my dissertations, my MA theses and my books and articles. And so in that sense, she's been very, very involved as my right arm, you know, in the ministry. She wants to be a part and has been involved in very practical ways. And so that's another thing, as I say, not just sharing a common vision, but saying, how can I help? You know, is there something I could do, even of, say, a bookkeeping nature or something like that, to ease the burden on you? Yeah, Luke? I actually wanted to insert something like a dissenting opinion on this other question. And it's not necessarily related. I don't think you'll disagree, but one of the one of the problems, so I spent a lot of time with other grad students who are married, and one of the problems is that they 
they were not expecting to run into difficulties. And so it doesn't seem to them like there's any atmospheres where they can safely just talk to someone about it. Hmm. So one of the things I think, I mean, again, I doubt that this is kind of the, to, to the heart of what you're doing, but I do think um, kind of lending a ready ear, um, providing a safe um, atmosphere to talk about the issues helps. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I mean, it, I just have seen a couple a couple places where it never got talked about, and so it became oh. much, much much more work. So yeah. So it seems it seems like one thing you can do is just talk. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes, well, only once actually, but some, but maybe if we were talking as couples. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, we, you know, we've done that when we've had difficulties sometimes, gone to an older married couple whose marriage we admired and said, we're struggling, can you help us? And that has been helpful to talk with another couple. And the other thing I wanted to emphasize too that Luke brought up is, is not to sweep these little difficulties under the rug because you may think, oh, this is just a, a triviality, it's a, it's a little thing. But these little cracks grow over time and become crevasses eventually. And so if you're young in your marriage, if you're new in your marriage and you're arguing with each other a lot, that's hard, but it's good that you're doing it. So rejoice and be glad that you're arguing you know, with your spouse because that means you're confronting these problems rather than sweeping them under the rug. And it's painful to do this, but you'll be much happier in the end that you did do that rather than just sweep things under the rug. Uh, let, let's take the student question first. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, you know, now I, this, is, this is a very serious point. I think that the question betrays a misunderstanding of what I said. Jan wasn't interested in philosophy. She made herself become interested in philosophy because she was married to a philosopher. See, I'm not suggesting that you marry people who have the same interests. I'm saying you make a commitment to say, I'm going to be interested in molecular biology. You know, I'm going to be interested in Russian literature, even if I don't care about it, because I'm married to you. And so it, that, that's what I'm talking about is, is precisely, you may not have a natural proclivity, but, but you, you do it, you make yourself do it because you love that other person. It, it's wonderful. I, I think it's rare to have that kind of friend, but boy, if you do, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, for a man to have a male friend that he can talk to about these things and a woman to have a female friend that she can open her heart to, I think you're, you're absolutely right that if you can find that kind of person, you're fortunate indeed. Yeah, Mark? And I think this will be the last one in, in interest of time so that we can get to our dinner. Bill, when you spend time with your with your wife, or your family. Let's say that there's a problem in your research or something that, how, how do you, you can be present with them, but not really mentally present. <laughs> and so, do you have time between time with the family and time that you've been working on, say, your your, your research or something yeah. that you, you wind down or, or you? Uh, yeah, this is a good point. I've often been told that I'm checked out. You know, that even though I'm there, my mind is somewhere else, you know, thinking about Zeno or something. And so you're, you're right, that can be a problem. That's especially a problem if you have an office in the home. 
like I do because you just come upstairs and you're there. Whereas if you, if you can work outside of the home, library or in an office on campus or something, and then drive home, that can become your transition time during which maybe you might pray or you might just listen to the radio just to free your mind and, and, and have that transition time. And I think you're right that that is good. For me, when I was doing my doctoral work in Birmingham, it was the long bus ride home from the university out to where we lived that gave me that transition time. And uh, otherwise, you're right, it's hard to turn off the mind and what one might have to do. Well, what one could do is, is just quit a few minutes early and then just have some downtime even right there. Uh, just doing something else or thinking about something else or doing something mindless so that you build the transition in um, before you before you come into the room where your wife and children are. But uh, have you experienced this problem yourself of, yeah, yeah, it's hard. You can, your mind can be racing and it's, it's, it's very difficult. But yeah, that, I, I, that would be what I'd say, I suppose. Okay, well, this is a great challenge and uh, I hope that uh, all of us who are married will um, be able to honor the Lord in the relationships that we build.